portion of this letter that we're in, which makes up chapters five and six. Um, we've taken it all together. It all focuses on a single topic, and we've titled this mini-series, Judging the Church. And the reason is because what Paul addresses that's going on in the church in Corinth um, is the reality of sin in the church and then either how it's not being dealt with, how it is wrongly being dealt with, or how it should be dealt with. And as you read through chapters 5 and 6, the language is elevated in intensity. The seriousness is tangible. Uh, This is a big deal to the Apostle Paul. Now, if you haven't been with us, um, the passage that we're about to read is only appropriately understood in this broader context. Um, this, this passage in particular, as beautiful and as helpful as it is, as familiar you might be with it, or as um, bothered as you might be the first time we read it, it's worthwhile just for starters to take note that we've got to lay some groundwork, we've got to put some context, we have to put some reminders in place of where we've been um, for this to be understandable to us. Instead of doing that up front and then reading the passage, uh, there's so much of that to do. I'd rather just read the passage, pray, and then we'll take a look. And so we're just looking at a few verses tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let's read them together. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear tonight. I pray that you would give us um, hearts that are not distracted or restless. I ask that you would teach us by your spirit. And as some of these things tonight can be uncomfortable and difficult, um, I pray that you'd give us not merely endurance, Lord, uh, but frankly, that we would just give you the, the benefit of the doubt, that our ears would really be open, that we would be ready to be not just challenged in what we believe, but that we'd even be open to the warning that opens this passage, the danger of deception. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Context. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth by way of correction. That's the whole reason he's writing. He's heard some things He feels they're very serious, and he needs to respond to them. And so he begins with a big general issue that's going on in the church in the first few chapters, and then he starts to address specific issues beginning in chapter 5. The one he opens with is a doozy. What's happened is that a man in the church is having an affair with his stepmother. And so she's left his father, and they're now living together. Um, And the problem is not just that this has happened— but that the church hasn't reacted or responded to it at all. They seem to just be ignoring the issue. And it's possible that they're doing it uh, because 
because they don't think it's a big deal. They don't think it needs to be addressed. And the way that he talks, it may even be possible that they see this as some sort of badge, as a demonstration that they're the right kind of church or, or a good kind of church, whether that means that they're, uh, you know, they've embraced this new morality uh, that's more spiritual and not so constricting and condemned, uh, or, or maybe it's that they're so gracious that they allow this type of behavior. But Paul basically says that's, that's not how this should be handled. Instead, he says that this person needs to be removed from the church. And the reason, as we saw, um, has ultimately to do with the fact that this, uh, this man has put himself in a precarious situation. He's looking at his life and saying, I'm part of a church, I partake of communion, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, and he's living a life that not only denies that, but, but puts a major question mark over the validity of, validity of that. Paul asks the church to be as serious with sin as Jesus was. And the difference here uh, is intriguing because right after he says this, he says, now when I'm talking about not being connected with, not having fellowship, not even eating with the sexually immoral, I'm not talking about non-Christians. He takes the time to say, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should remove yourself from all the sinners and keep your life clean. He says, outside the church, those relationships need to be maintained. Those relationships need to be sustained. For shorthand of what that passage looks like, just look at the life of Jesus. He was constantly criticized for the people that he spent time with, prostitutes and tax collectors and the despised and the despicable, those who were unclean as seen by the rest of society. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, however, inside the church, you shouldn't even eat with somebody who's continuing in sin. And the reason, uh, the reason that's the case is the same one we see in Jesus's life. The reason he's so harsh with the religious leaders, those who identify as being righteous, the reason why he takes such a kind of an angry prophet role instead of a inviting, comforting role like he does with the prostitutes is because, uh, because the sinners, so-called, those who have reputations, those who are aware that they're outside of the kingdom are aware of it, and so they can be invited in. But the danger that he's seeing in this couple in the church, the danger that he's seeing is that they think they're on the inside, just like the Pharisees. They assume that everything's okay, and that puts them in a much more precarious situation. Uh, To illustrate it simply, what's scarier? A man who's diagnosed with cancer or one who has yet to find out that he has cancer? Which one's more at risk? Which situation is more serious, right? That's how we see Jesus behaving, and the reason why sin needs to be dealt with in the church so strongly is because people are assuming they're on the inside when it may be that they've just built a little outhouse right next to God's family, right? They've, they've set up camp on the very borders, and that actually puts them in a much more dangerous situation than, tho- than those who are so far off they'd never make the mistake of assuming everything was okay. And so it's, it's very serious. Now, he comes into another issue in chapter 6, and he says another thing that's going on in the church is one Christian is taking another Christian to court. And specifically, he's talking about suing. He's talking about civil court. He's talking about somebody who's taken advantage of someone, and so they take them to court to get justice. And he deals with this issue, and he says this should and can be dealt with in the church. And then he says something very surprising he says, if you go, lo- go to the courts, if you take your lawsuit before unbelievers, 
If you go to the court system outside with another Christian, you've already lost the case. This is what he says, look in um, chapter 6, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Right? He says, you really want to win? You want the better life? It'd be better for you just to take the hit, to endure your mistreatment, to let the whole thing go, he says, than to take it before unbelievers. Now, we don't have time to re-unpack that. But I just want you to notice the context because what he says next is what leads us into tonight's passage. He finishes, finishes that section in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He says, not only are you not like Jesus taught, turning the other cheek. Not only is there not forgiveness taking place, even when you've been sinned against terribly, but more than that, you're actually harming and damaging and hurting one another. Now notice the next word. Where does verse 9 begin? It begins with the word or. You see, that's super important. Okay? If that word wasn't there and this was just a white page with this paragraph, verses 9 through 11 on the page, you would not know what it was Paul was talking about, even though you'd know what it was Paul said. And the void instead of the context, would make all the difference, okay? Because Paul here is not giving some sort of standalone sentence that you can, you know, put on a brass plaque and hang over your mantle. Not that any of us would probably be tempted to do so, right? It's not that type of verse. Um, It's part of an argument. It's a piece in this larger section. And one of the reasons why it's worth pointing that out is because you have to remember here who Paul's talking to. Although he's setting the boundaries for the kingdom of God, he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom, he is not preaching to unbelievers. This is not a message to non-Christians. He's not like John Wesley standing on his father's tombstone and proclaiming this to the crowds. He's writing this to the church. And like I said, that doesn't change the content, but that change in context is important because most of the time when this passage is read, Most of the time when we encounter what we call a vice list, right, which is what Paul here does, he labels one vice after another as he does many other places, most of the time we have a tendency to see this as a sign that's hung outside of the kingdom, right, kind of like the one outside of our place, if you've ever walked up Pine, that tells you the type of people who can't come into that bar, Uh, actually all the bars on Capitol Hill, you know, no no bigots, no, right, they have this list, Um, That's not what's going on here. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who identify as being inside, and that's a super important point. Not only that, but what he says here, he expects them to know, right? When he says, do you not know, he's not asking them like, oh, did you not know, right? He knows they should know better. He's surprised that they've forgotten these truths or aren't living in light of it. He's reminding them of something that not only have they forgotten, but more importantly, they've neglected. And so he says, don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And what follows is a list. Like I said, it's a vice list. It's not the only one in the Bible or in the New Testament. There are 10 items on this list, but it's not the Ten Commandments. Uh, If you look at the other lists of vices, like the ones that we have in the book of Galatians or in the book of Romans, uh, the list is different. It'll share some commonalities, but it's different in places, and that's really important because he's not giving a complete list here, right? Um, If you've ever had a website 
there's this thing on the internet called the blacklist, right? Blacklists allow filters to help you avoid dangerous websites, and any website that's put on the blacklist is held outside. Everything else passes through, okay? That's not what this is. It's not the complete and holistic blacklist. In fact, the list that he picks here, like I said, isn't drawn from this big uh, expression of morality like the Ten Commandments, but it's specific, and it's intentionally specific. Now, he's already actually given in chapters 5 and 6 two other viceless, and both of them are completely contained in this last one. And so what's happened is he's progressively added to the list as he's made his argument, and now in the final presentation he adds more to the list. But it's not surprising when you count over the list that um, just over half of these ten terms refer to sexual sin. Because that's where he starts in chapter 5. That's where he addresses in the very first hand, and he's not done yet. As we finish out this series next week and close out chapter 6, he's going to point out, oh, by the way, those of you who are Christians who have decided that uh, visiting prostitutes is okay because it's just your body and, and you, know, you eat because you're hungry and you have this sexual desire so you might as well fulfill it, it doesn't really matter, he's going to address that as well. And so he focuses here on sexual sins because that's a serious issue in Corinth. When he uses specifically the words um, for thieves, for greedy, for revilers, and for swindlers, he's talking about the court cases that are going on, right? Because of money, they're going to court against one another. Because of this, they're trying to develop a case against one another, which involves reviling. It means to tear down another person verbally, to, foil, to soil their reputation, etc. Um. And so this list is custom fit. He's speaking directly to the Corinthians. But we need to recognize tonight that this list is not a gate in to the kingdom. It does clearly show us the boundaries to the kingdom. It shows us who's in and who's out. But we don't find the gate into the kingdom until the last verse, right? In 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That's the front door to the kingdom. And that's super important. Okay? The reason I say this is because oftentimes that's how this passage is treated. And so the message that we broadcast as a church, or maybe if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, the message that you hear from the church is stop doing these things and then you can be a part. But that's not the message here, is it? It's you're a part of the kingdom, so these things are no longer appropriate. I know that sounds like almost the same thing, but we'll see tonight they're worlds apart. This is more than just a cart before the horse issue, okay? The big question of what's wrong with humanity and how is it fixed is on the line in these two things, in the order in these things, okay? So, he's speaking here to Christians, and he's saying that your behavior of defrauding one another, of allowing sexual sin to be in existence in the church and not dealt with, of attending press prostitutes. He says, have you forgotten the fact that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now on the list, like I said, he deals in specifics, things that are appropriate to Corinth, and the number one on the list, the one that contains most of the items, involves sexual sin. Look with me again. 
He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. This whole beginning has sexual connotations, maybe the only exception being idolatry, but he probably adds it to this list because if you read the Old Testament, the relationship between idolatry in the Old Testament and sexuality is surprisingly close, right? When God criticizes Israel for how they've treated him, he does it in terms of spiritual adultery. I was your husband, and you've whored yourself out to these other gods, right? So there's some sort of overlap there that's on Paul's mind, but for the most part, he begins this list with all of these sexual sin items, and that was a reality in the church in Corinth. As chapter 5, verse 1 lays out, as chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 start to get into, um, even as we move into chapter 7, it will come up more and more. This is a major issue, and Corinth, by the way, is not alone in this. The world that Paul was writing in, the first century Roman Empire, was an extremely sexualized place. Sex was a commonplace and fully expressed reality. Um, There was very little in terms of a social conscience in sexuality. In fact, most of the places they drew lines didn't have to do with the sexual act itself, but the politics of gender or of power or these other things, right? It was something else where they drew the line. But for the most part, Roman citizens believed, at least if you were a man, that you had a wife for children, that you had an affair for love, and that you had prostitution for taking care of the needs of the body. Sexuality was broad and incredibly diverse. There was the practice of pedestry, which was basically men who were mentoring young boys, and that mentorship was paid in sex, in sex between them. Okay? Um, Plato's greatest argument for love, the symposium, is actually about that type of love, the love between an old man and a young boy. This was just an accepted and normal reality. Sexuality in the first century uh, Rome was such that 14 of the 15 emperors lived either homosexual or bisexual lives. Now we don't always understand that context, but that's the world that Rome existed in at the time. That's the world that the church in Corinth existed in. And as he adds here, and such were some of you, that's the world that this church came out of. Okay. Now, we may recognize in American history or in Western history a swing in how the culture views sex, right? There's prudish times. We pick up, uh, we pick up phrases along the way like Victorian to talk about these incredibly restrained periods or puritanical, right? Recognizing this. But I think we'd all recognize tonight that if there's a spectrum, we're closer to the Roman side than we are to the Puritans, right? That's just where we are. And so this becomes helpful for us, but it also becomes intense, does it not? Here's the thing about this list. I want you to notice how broad it is before we talk about anything else. For all of us tonight, there's things on the list that maybe hit a little close to home or make us uncomfortable or bother us in terms of a biblical ethic, and then there's other things that we think are essential on the list. And then there's probably some things that that come off as surprising. Right? The, the list is, is very broad. And so maybe you've grown up in the church and you're exposed to a more rigid sexual ethic and that part of the list you're used to. But notice here that it addresses greed. Right? And there's this tendency uh, as Americans, no matter where you fall in the sexuality, to embrace greed except except if you're more on the liberal perspective on politics, and then you recognize the terror that people can do for money, 
right? And so you want swindlers and the greedy to be on this list. The greedy are those who will do anything to get money, no matter who stands in their way, and the swindlers are those who intentionally take advantage of people to make money, right? The loan sharks and these realities. Notice that drunkards makes the list, and so does revilers. Now, I find that one especially interesting because we tend to think about words as not a big deal. I don't hear it as often as I did when I was a kid, but we've all heard sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Really, how many hours on psychologist couches have proven otherwise? How many of us can still remember the entire sentence that person said in our life that constantly haunts us, right? And here, revilers, those who verbally tear other people down through gossip, through criticism, through, uh, you know, all of these things, that's what that word implies, is on the list. You see, there's this tendency, and this is important, there's this tendency for us as human beings to gradiate levels of sinfulness, issues of evil. And I'm not talking about kill a million people and that's mass murder and that's worse than just killing one person. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about over here is just, just what you say and that's not a big deal. Or, or, you know, there's sins against people and then there's sins that are just about me and I'm not hurting anyone. We find all these ways to grade out the system. You can't do that with Paul's list here. It's surprisingly broad. It's surprisingly diverse. And the place I would challenge you, if there's things on the list tonight that are uncomfortable for you, that you wish weren't there, just take enough time to recognize that not only do we all do that, but we all do it differently. What does he say in the very beginning here? Look at the end of verse 9. Do not be deceived. What does deception have to do with sin? According to the Bible, absolutely everything. The two always go hand in hand. When you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you have a single command in the garden for Adam and Eve. And when the serpent comes along and tempts Eve, he does it in a way that involves deception. Is that really what God said? Does God really have your best interest in mind? Will you really die? Right? It's deception. In fact, that's how Paul himself understands that episode. He tells us in 1 Timothy that Eve was deceived by the serpent. In another place in the New Testament, it refers to the deceitfulness of sin. And this is something, no matter where you are on the spectrum, how you feel about these things, Christian or non, that you can actually recognize. Because we can all see in the lives of others, and probably in our own lives, this pattern, this cycle of harmful behavior that involves deception. Okay? Where we look at something and we recognize that we want it, we find a desire for it, and we go after it looking for satisfaction, and then what happens next? The cycle ticks over once, and what you find is emptiness and frustration. What you find is uh, guilt or a letdown or the blues or these types of things. And not only does it trick us the first time, but oftentimes it's just the first go around the lap, right? And there's a second, and second verse is same as the first, and we once again think, all I need is a little bit more. And it gets us again. You see, there's this reality of sin, as the Bible talks about it, that is inherently deceptive. It makes promises it can't keep. It writes checks it won't cash. 
And not only is it deceitful, but we're prone to buying into that. We're prone to getting caught in the cycle. And there's another reality of that too. Not only is the, what's desirous in sin uh, deceitful because we think it will satisfy and it don't, doesn't, but when the pattern comes around, it tricks us again. And after a while, we can even deceive ourselves into thinking that this is the good life, that this is the happy life. Right? And although we still feel just as empty, now we will defend that behavior to other people as if it's the thing that gives us vitality. That it makes life worth living. This is why, this is why even if you experience a behavior that you don't condone and you begin with it and you indulge in it after a while, you're no longer sensitive to it. Right? You develop a callus over this wound and it doesn't bother you like it used to. He says, do not be deceived here because this is part and parcel of what sin does. Now, just as an aside, what the Bible would call self-righteousness is also deceptive. See, because the reality is sin and guilt go hand in hand just as much as sin and deception. And we will do something with that guilt. We might try and explain it away. Like Eve and Adam in the garden, we might try and place it on someone else's shoulder and blame. We might try and tip the scales with good work that we do, and we go, well, I have my little vices, but look at all these good things I do. But you can't just leave guilt sit. You have to do something with it. And oftentimes, self-righteousness is just another wrong way to deal with guilt, right? By demonstrating that everybody's worse than you are. By lifting yourself up in other people so they won't know the reality of who you are. All of these things. And so hypocrisy is in this list of sins, right? And a, a writer that I've always been influenced by says this. He says, hypocrisy is not just a great sin. It's a great foolishness. Because you're trying to pull the wool over the only eyes in the universe that can't have the wool pulled over them. And everyone you can deceive with your hypocrisy, it doesn't matter. They don't get a vote in reality. But even there, this, this pattern of deception plays, takes place. Pride is this way. Have you ever noticed that when you're dealing with pride in yourself or another person, they, can only, they easily see what they're doing right and can never see what they're doing wrong? And when they weigh those things, they put extra value in the good things and very little value in, in the bad Right? This, is, this is what's at stake here. This is the reality. And so wherever you identify on the list, wherever you find yourself, whatever makes you uncomfortable on the list, recognize how broad this is. Now in the midst of this broadness, it does, as I already mentioned, favor sexuality. And that makes sense in Corinth, and it makes sense in our times, but it makes sense in a bigger picture as well. Okay? It makes sense for the fact of, of human existence, which is that we are inherently sexual beings. When you look at the Bible and you start reading it from the front cover, how long does it take for you to encounter sexuality? You have the world created, you have man, you have woman, right there. The two shall become one flesh. Right? Before there's music, before there's restaurants, before there's creativity, before anything else, the reality of sexuality is there from the very beginning. There's this tendency to think that the Bible is so 
um, so controlling of sexuality uh, because it sees it as, as a bad thing in itself or as, as an unimportant or as a shameful thing, right? And so there has been times, by the way, where the church has thought in these ways that sex was at best a necessary evil for getting kids, but some, some monks who, you know, took on vows of celibacy and then tried to teach these passages, they'd say, married couples, you, you should have kids, but don't enjoy it, because that would be inappropriate, right? Um, there also were other times where this became the great sin, sexuality. And so you will still encounter portrayals of Christian religious settings where the original sin has nothing to do with the fruit and obedience. It has everything to do with the experience of sex. But in actuality, not only do we see the uh, reality of sex throughout the Bible, I mean, it's, it's, it's a relatively sexual book. There, there is lots of sex going on, and a lot of it does terrible damage. But the reason, the reason is not because sex is bad. The reason is because sex is so tremendously good. The reason is not because it's something minor um, that's, you know, at the very least a fringe issue that shouldn't be a part of your life. It's because it's such a core and important part of your life that the Bible spends so much time talking about it. See, the way that the Bible sees sexuality in relationship to the rules provided with it is that the two go hand in hand when you answer the question, what is the purpose of sex? And I challenge you, even tonight, if you're coming from that place where where you're uncomfortable with a biblical sexual ethic, how do you answer that question? How does the Bible? Because let's just recognize that purpose and the rules that go with purpose, they matter. And so he refers here to the sexually immoral. This is a catch-all, very broad term. The word in the Greek is pornea, where we get our word pornography, and it is intentionally broad. If it happens outside of the confines of a monogamous, heterosexual relationship, pornea is applied. And this is not just in the Bible, but in all the Jews' writings everywhere. It's very consistently used in that way. Um, He mentions the adulterers, which we still carry the same connotation for that English word, so we know what's being talked about there. Now, you'll notice at the end of verse 9, it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. And that's a very loose translation of two very difficult Greek words. Okay, Uh, One of them is only used once in the New Testament, and the other is only used twice. The second one never occurs in Greek literature prior to this passage, although we do find it in places elsewhere. What I'm telling you tonight is one of the words that Paul uses in this passage, he selects, he coins. He he chooses this word out of thin air to describe what he's talking about. So if you have a different translation tonight, it can read all sorts of different ways, but instead of trying to touch on all of them, um, really we'll just look at the two words. And the first one is malakos, okay? Malakos literally just means soft. And if you look at it as it's used in Greek literature, um, it can mean everything from soft living, like bonbons and laying on the couch, um, uh, to kind of the criticism that a, a machismo man would give to a man who didn't have those aspects, who are just soft, you know. Um, but it oftentimes means feminine, and in a very specific way. Uh, the word is most often used 
of the passive partner in a homosexual relationship as opposed to the active partner, okay? Now, we have to stick a pin in that. That's the first word on the list, malikos. Sometimes it's translated as effeminate. Um, but the second one is arsenokoites, okay? And like I said, it's, it's unique. We don't find it before the existence of Paul writing this letter, it's, as long as we have our understanding of history laid out the right way. Um, it's literally just a compound word of two words, men and to lie or to bed. That's it. Just, just these two words crammed together in a way that's never been done before. And so when we look at these two criteria, some people say, well, he's, I mean, some people will say as much as whatever effeminate means, we just can't be sure on, so we shouldn't be dogmatic. And they'll say, as for the other word, he's clearly talking about male prostitution. But the problem is, they have to come up with where he came from that, came with this term, and we'll come back to that in a second. Others say, what Paul is referring to here is pedestry, something that even today we would recognize as being somewhat horrific, right? We're, we're still not comfortable with the idea of pedophilia, uh, let alone one that has both an economic dispersion and, and a coercion involved in it, right? But Paul knows the word for pedestry. Paul uses the Greek language very proficiently. He knows his culture. He's aware of these things. But he doesn't choose that word. Instead, he coins a new one. And so we have to ask the question, where does it come from? And there is a place in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where we find this term, uh, at least the words that make it up, both arson and coites, okay? And that's in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And in both of those passages, it says, men who lie with men. And so what, it, what makes the most sense in this passage is that Paul has just made a compound word. In the same way that we used to talk about children who wet the beds, and now we have bedwetters. Okay? Now, I'm not dealing with the other questions or the reality of this. I'm just talking about textually. This is the simplest answer to what's going on here. Now, to be clear... This passage is not about homosexuality. It's one of six passages that reference homosexuality in the Old and New Testament. Um, there's another one that's a vice list like this that includes this same word in the pastoral epistles. There's Romans chapter 1. Um, there's the Leviticus passages that I already mentioned and a few more. But I don't want this to be a sermon on homosexuality because that's clearly not what's going on here. But in our time and in our place, we have to be careful with these things, and we have to be clear. And I'll tell you just outright, uh, I've still got pain in my stomach from the roughness of last night in preparing, and it's not because of any form of fear of dealing with these things. It's because of the tension between two things. And one is faithfulness on the sending side. Simply as a pastor, whatever this Bible says, I want to be faithful to. And the other is clarity on the recipient side. Because when we talk about these things, so often all of this baggage is hijacked in from other conversations, from outside the Bible, from inappropriate prejudice, from all of these things, okay? And so I do want to take the time to just deal with a couple of things. First off, some, some questions. Some will look at this passage and go, well, see, Paul here is talking about... Um, something different than, than what we have in our modern world that we would call homosexuality. He's, he's talking about behavior, and he's not talking about orientation. 
Uh, and, and to some degree, that's right. The, the Romans in this time didn't think of sexual orientation. It wasn't something that they talked about. But the way that Paul deals with it, leaving it in behavior, um, is important and can't be ignored. And here's, here's something that's really odd. There's a tendency to think, well, if this is my nature... If I was born this way, if this is just an innate desire I have, it can't be problematic, can it? But the reality, according to the Bible, is not that we're trying to put too much weight on a particular sin, but that we're not putting enough weight on every sin. Because the Bible actually says something much worse. It doesn't just say some people are prone to bad things. It says all of us are bent in our desires. That all of us were born this way, and that's not a good thing. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to all of us as Christians as being by nature children of God's wrath. You see, the nature is actually the problem. That's why um, we as Christians can't take hope in a message that just says, if you know the right rules and you follow them, everything will be okay. Because we can't. Because there's something so wrong with us that we cannot just do the right thing. Let me take another illustration on a a different topic. Drunkenness. And I don't actually want to compare the two, drunkenness and uh, homosexuality, but instead, we now recognize that um, your genetics and your disposition to addiction uh, plays into drunkenness so that we would label it an illness. The, The Bible doesn't say, no, no, it's less than that, it's just bad choices. It actually says that all sin has that component in it that all sin is inherently addictive. Do, you, do we... Uh, I don't think I ever make it a month without quoting Jay-Z, so forgive me. But Jay-Z asked this question on the Black Album. He says, do you really think, do you really think it's the addicts that they're the only ones who are addicted? Do you really think that crack is the only drug? He says, do you think I hit the street and hustle because it's a good opportunity? No, the thrill of it, the reality of it, what he's chasing even as a rapper, is, is addictive. It has to do with that same pattern of sin. This is why the Bible casts the whole light of sin as not just freedom things that you shouldn't do, but enslaving things that will trip you up, that will enchain you, that will ensnare you, that you won't be able to get out of. Just in terms of behavioral science, we know this to be true, right? How do you develop a habit? One decision at a time. And there is the total potential, right? We can do it with Pavlov's dog of conditioning, of doing the same thing over and over again until it's not as much an active decision as it is a passive anymore. The Bible recognizes that component of all sin. Others would look at the issue here and they'd go, well, laying aside orientation, Paul doesn't have in mind, he can't even possibly envision a loving and committed intimate sexual relationship between homosexuals. He must here be talking about um, casual sex or or all of these other things. Um, But once again, the, the terms just aren't that specific and the first century world had these things. Caesar Nero, who's on the throne right now, had a boy castrated and married him with great Uh, with great ceremony in his life. And then later on, he had another wedding where instead he saw himself as the wife and this man as his husband. I recognize the differences there. But don't mistake the commonalities. 
what I'm trying to impress on you tonight before we move any further is simply this. That if you're going to remove this from the Bible, there's a terrible risk there. And not just because you could be wrong. It's because if the word of God doesn't mean what it says, then who can say what it means? It's because we all have a tendency to deceive ourselves. We all have a tendency to justify ourselves. None of us likes the light of Scripture on us. And this is just as true for Christians, which is why I want to turn the tables for a second. And I want you to recognize what this passage is not saying. First off, notice that these two terms are just thrown in the middle of the list. They don't head it, and they don't finish it. Paul here doesn't bring up these sins because they're the worst ones. They're just sin. And there has been a tendency in the church to elevate homosexuality to some sort of unique capacity, that this is something that means that you're unsavable, or, or something that's just so bad it completely outstrips or outclasses other sins, that idea is totally foreign to Paul. So many pastors in the last century and the century before it wouldn't even read these terms as they got into their sermon. They'd read it as a passage at the beginning, and then they'd talk about those things that are unfit to name. Paul didn't have any sort of, of hesitation to use these words, to speak of these things. Second, I want you to notice here that it's not the only sexual sin on the list. And when he says, and such, such were some of you, or more accurately when he says, and all of you were some such, right? The idea here is not that there's a back row in the church of people like this. The idea this is where the church comes from. That when God saves Noah, it's not the one righteous man he finds. He, like everyone else, uh, Genesis 6, his thoughts are always evil and his intentions are of wickedness, and God graciously grabs him and pulls him out of that. With Abraham, just like his fathers, according to the book of Joshua, he's an idol worshiper, and God sovereignly, graciously calls him out. That's where we all begin from. If you can't find yourself on this list, we can turn to another list where we'll find you, okay? That's the origin of all of us. And so we speak then to the world, we speak to people who have particular sins as sexual sinners, and then more importantly, as sinners in general. Three. This one you may have missed if you weren't with us. But I want you to hear what Paul says just a chapter earlier in 5 verse 12. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? And what's the implied rhetorical answer? Nothing. Nothing. Now, you cannot read a passage like we just did and not recognize that there is a responsibility we have as Christians to warn the world of judgment. To do so would be unloving. But there's a total difference between warning of the reality of judgment, that there really is a God, and becoming the judge yourself. And the church has too often taken up the gown and the wig and the gavel, especially on this issue, and become the judge. There are also things that are wrong with the church today that make this issue harder than it has to be. For example, the church has a terrible tendency to elevate marriage. 
if you're single, maybe you've even experienced this in the church, you feel like because you're single, you're some sort of second-class Christian. And marriage and a family is always held out as an aspiration. If you never achieve it, then you, you worry that you're doing something wrong or, or, you know, or you've been relegated to some other status or these types of things. But we'll see this in the next chapter, in chapter 7, when we get there in August. Singleness is good. Not better, but not worse. Good. If not, and especially if you're married tonight, if not, then what does that say about the real humanity of Jesus? Jesus who never had a wife. Jesus who never had a sexual encounter. Can you really say, well, I guess, I guess he didn't really have the full extent of the human experience. Another one, and this is not just the church's fault, this is our culture, we don't know what friendship is anymore. And so the last bastion of friendship is marriage. And we basically say, well, you have your friends, and then you have this friend, right? This deeper level of intimacy. And so once again, we make this distinction and say, well, you can have friends, but not real ones, right? And this is a huge cultural issue. Am I wrong? Facebook friends, right? The, this reality that we no longer know how to have intimacy, and I'll speak personally, when I, was, when I was in high school, intimacy without sexuality was impossible. I could never befriend a girl and have any closeness with her without trying to make that relationship sexual, and if it didn't, I walked away. But listen, it says something about our culture when we read about, for example, David and Jonathan, King David and Saul's son Jonathan, and it says that David loved Jonathan in a way he'd never loved a woman, and we don't even know what to do with it. Right? That type of intimacy outside of marriage, we don't think is a thing. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is a level of friendship and closeness and satisfaction in other people that we as a culture, and the church included, no longer tap into. And so it does relegate people who uh, repent of particular sins to second-class life. Let me add another one to the list. When he says here, and such were some of you, but you were washed, justified, sanctified, notice it doesn't say heterosexualized. And we wouldn't expect it to. He's not just talking about homosexuality here, but the point is we sometimes talk as if what God is going to do for you is just take away the desire. Once again, that's a misunderstanding of how sin works. What we see in the Christian life is not just a complete reversal of desire and so you no longer want bad things. What you see is victory in spite of those desires. What you see is new and better desires, but never the ending of those things. And so when we sell people this horrible lie that you just won't want anymore, it's a complete misunderstanding of what's going on. And it makes for, for an awful false hope. There's also a tendency, I think, to require more of people in this position, to police them more, to make sure they don't fall in the same behavior, to tolerate it less in the church. How many churches can you think of by reputation um, or by personal experience who could find other things on this list, like the greedy, for example, but a big portion of the tithe comes from them, and so we're not, we're not really going to deal with it, Right? All of these things misunderstand what Paul is saying here. 
And some of them have to do with cultural issues of where we come from and distance, and others have to do, um, you, you know, it's, it's a complex issue. But ultimately, this is a passage of hope. Listen to what Paul says in verse 11, and such were some of you. What is the gate to the kingdom? What is the difference? For those who are inside the church versus all of these other sins, is it just that we had the moral wherewithal to make it happen? Is it just that our sins weren't as bad so we were able to overcome them? Are, are other quote-unquote sinners just to be pitied because they have it so rough but there's nothing they can do because the distance is just too far? Nothing in this sentence in verse 11 is something that you did. He says, such were some of you. These are the places that you came from. You also once by nature were children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2. You were outside the kingdom, but what? He gives three verbs here, and all of them are in the passive or the middle tense, which means they're not things you did. He doesn't say, but you cleaned yourself up. He says you were washed. He doesn't say, but you made your case. He says you were justified. He doesn't say, but you set yourself apart and gave yourself to the Lord. No, he says you were set apart. You were sanctified. See, here's a major issue in our culture, a divergence between how Christians understand the world and how our world does. We recognize as Christians with the world that your upbringing, that your background, that your nature, that your genetics, that your, uh, the way you were treated, that all of these pieces are significant in shaping your decisions. But we also believe that none of them are determinate. You are not just a pattern of cause and result. You're not just a pattern of action leading to action leading to action, and therefore you're stuck. Wherever you are and wherever you're going, it's already laid out. And this is doubly so for us as Christians because we have not just a fresh start, but it mentions here the power of the Spirit of God. The Bible assumes real change, and that's the problem with the church in Corinth because the change isn't visible. And if the change isn't visible and it's available, you have to question if the change has happened. That's why he doesn't want them to be deceived. Listen, to continue in the items on this list as a Christian is to deny the power of what Jesus has accomplished. And it's on a couple of different levels, and then we'll close just looking at these three terms. One, it denies the seriousness of sin. The Bible says that sin is so horrible and so drastic and so dangerous that the only way it could be put to death was for God to become a man and take it on his own shoulders. And the Father willingly put Jesus through that for your sake because that's how serious sin is. He couldn't just look askance at it. He couldn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. He couldn't just say, well, you missed it by that much, so I'm just going to give you the mulligan, right? I'm just going to fill in the gap. No, he went to a tremendously painful and horrific depth to deal with sin. Jesus himself prayed in the garden, Father, if there's any other way. And there wasn't, so he went. The second, though, is it denies the reality of the resurrection. 
These three terms he uses, washed, sanctified, justified. If you take a biblical theology class or a systematic theology class, they're going to reverse those terms and say, no, 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 you're justified, and then you're sanctified, and then you're glorified. And the idea is you were saved, justified, you are being saved, you are being changed, you are becoming more righteous, not just positionally sanctified, and one day you will be perfected, glorified. But Paul has them in the opposite order here, and I think he's actually delving down. I think he starts from the lowest case reason why we should live changed lives, and then he gets to the deeper ones. And so the first one he says is, you were washed. And this one, unlike the other two, isn't in the passive tense, it's in the middle tense, which means literally, you washed yourself. And so most people believe that this is speaking of baptism, right? And when we baptize as a church, what we're recognizing is something very important, okay? Jesus told us to do two things, to baptize and to take communion. In communion, we remember Jesus' death on our behalf. This is my body that was broken for you, right? But in baptism, we remember the fact that we have died with Christ. Romans chapter 6 opens this one, or, or this way, or do you not know that as many have been baptized in the name of Christ Jesus have died with him? You see, that's why in this church, when we baptize people, we submerge them in water because it reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You die, you go into the water, you're buried, and then you come up. And it's clear when you look at even the word baptizo, as opposed to the Greek word bapto, that the authors could have used to talk about getting Christians wet. It's clear that it implies change. The idea here is what Paul says when he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When he says, the old has passed away, behold, all things are new, for you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. God doesn't just give you a fresh start, he gives you something new. He makes you something different. And so baptism is a reminder that there is a line in your life before and after. There is a drastic change from when you weren't a Christian to when you are. All the metaphors the Bible uses for salvation are drastic. From darkness to light. Right? There's no grayscale there. From death to life. That's not recovery. Right? Resurrection is something different. But he takes it deeper. He says, not only were you washed, he says in verse 11, you were sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means to make holy. If you sanctified something in the Old Testament, what you did is you, you um, set it aside for specific sacred use. So you can have a spoon and a sanctified spoon. One can be used in the temple, the other can't. And so when it says here, you were sanctified, the recognition here is that God has set you aside for himself. That's why he'll finish this chapter saying, do you not know that you were not your own, but you were bought with a price? God has set you apart. In other words, what I'm saying here is salvation isn't just God setting you free from sin and now you can go your own merry way. Instead, he, he wants to be your Lord, right? He wants to be your master. And there's actually a wisdom in this. As much as we um, idolize freedom in this country, recognize that it's our freedom that gets us into the mess. Right? recognize that the way we got into slavery in the first place is because of our decisions. Read the story of the prodigal son. How does he end up poor and in the mud? Enslaved, selling himself into slavery to take care of these pigs. By choice. By severing himself from the father. And so sanctified is actually terribly good news, but it does mean that your life is not whatever you want it to be anymore that you've recognized that God is a better God than you are. And so obedience then becomes not a way to please God, 
but a recognition that God is good. We sing a hymn every once in a while called How Long, and it puts this perfectly. It says, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, will turn a slave into a child and duty into choice. Have you experienced that? Have you recognized that the things that you would never wanted to do, now you have a desire to do? Have you recognized whereas God may have been some ogre in the sky just waiting to punish you, now he's a loving father? Have you felt that transition? Sanctification is part of that. He says you were sanctified, and he finishes by saying you were justified. Justified is a court term. Literally, it means, it means that the penalty has been paid in full. And so the idea here isn't even that you got off scot-free as if, you know, you've been acquitted. The word is justified, meaning the punishment was served. And what the Bible says is that in Jesus Christ, God justifies the ungodly because the sentence is served. You just didn't have to serve it. Because the guilt and consequences of your sin, Jesus took on his own shoulders and it's been paid for. It's been done away with. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read Franz Kafka's The Trial. You know the guy who wrote the metamorphosis about Gregor Samsa who wakes up being a giant bug? He has another book called The Trial, and it's so rough to read. Not because it's poorly written, but it's just the premise is that a guy wakes up, and there's police in his room, and he's arrested for a crime he knows not what, and then he spends the rest of his days fighting a trial that he doesn't understand in a court system that doesn't make any sense. He very clearly, or very soon realizes that even his lawyer is also on trial for his own life, uh, and, and every time he feels like he's had a breakthrough, he finds another layer of deception and bureaucracy, and the book ends with him just stuck in this place of never knowing how his court case will come out. Where do you think Franz Kafka got such an idea? That is human life. None of us get to know the ending up front. And so we strive and we struggle to validate our lives, to prove it to others, to make our life count. We wonder if it's all going to mean anything. But for Christians, because we are justified, we have the verdict in advance. Not guilty. Paid in full. This is intriguing to me for, for one very specific reason, and that's because one of the things that feeds sinful behavior is guilt because we don't know what to do with it and we feel it weighing down on us so we cope through all of these methods of escapism or we scramble to set things right but we do it the wrong way through deception or through arrogance or these types of things and that for us as Christians has been completely removed. That's why I say so often in this church it's not just that we can't sin as Christians, we no longer need to because we have something better because what we're looking for in justification and meaning and all of those things are taken care of in Jesus Christ. But the question he asks here is, if you've been justified and are no longer guilty, if you've been sanctified and you're now set aside, if you've been washed and are no longer dirty, how can you continue to live in these ways? He's not accusing them. He's, he's, he's just pointing out a disparity. He says, don't deceive yourself. Two things. No one on this list, no matter how far, no matter how deep, no matter how much they may tell themselves that it's not possible, no one is removed from the possibility of these things, of justification, of sanctification, of being washed, because we don't do it, and God has done it all. That's why we sing sometimes, Jesus paid it all. It's all taken care of. Second, Many things on this list, 
come with shame. Sin always carries shame as well, right? Especially if it's a pattern of behavior, if it's something that you've been hiding for a long time, you're afraid of being found, up, found out because of how people will think of you, this whole reality. And so maybe tonight you read over this list and you just feel the weight of who you were again or who you still struggle not to be. You know that some people can have a glass of wine with dinner and it's not a problem and you will just lose your mind and go crazy if you allow yourself the privilege. You feel like a horrible human being. Such were some of you, but that's not who you are. What God gives us in Jesus Christ is a brand new identity. A washed one, a sanctified one, a justified one. This message right here, it's the only message that can give you confidence in life without making you arrogant. The cross is the only point in history that you can look at and feel the love and the mercy of God and still let him be just and righteous. This is the only place where you can stand inside the kingdom and not lean over the wall and go, look at all those peons who couldn't get their act together. In fact, this is the reason why he says, I'm not saying that you should go out of the world. I'm not saying that you should avoid these people. No matter how you feel about any given sin on this list, you should be in relationship with these people who aren't Christians. Because you're not any better than them. Because God loves them just as much as he loves you. Because the good news of the gospel is just as much for them as it was for you. None of them is unreachable. None of them is unsavable. None of them is off the agenda. So like I said, we're at a time where this can feel like bad news, even if you think it's true news. But it's good news. Let's pray. Father, it's been so encouraging to me to walk through this whole passage, through five and six, to understand the whole context and to weed out all of these assumptions that skew who you are. All of these terrible sin issues inside the church, pride and arrogance, all of these things that masquerade as righteousness which aren't, and we just smuggle them into this passage, but the true and the full reality in all of its context that's good news. I pray, Lord, that we would first and foremost take these truths for ourselves. That we'd recognize that when Paul says, don't be deceived, he's speaking to us because we're prone to deception. It's part of the weakness of fallen human beings. And so that we would weigh these things carefully. I pray as well that we would take the encouragement that Paul intends in the good news of this this is who you were, sure, but it's not who you are. And I ask lastly, Father, that, that the goodness of God, as well as coupled with the seriousness of sin, would make us proactive in love. Because that's who you are. Because you saw a world dying of sin and you took action, drastic action. You took that death, you wrapped it up in your own body and you swallowed it whole. And then you freely invite us in, not just to a second chance, not just to forgiveness, but to transformation. 
not just to restoration, but to resurrection. I pray we'd know more of that in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.